Blog Talk Radio. members of that 
on the new and living color. I like it. I, I, yeah, I, I think it's. I think it would be a good idea. I think you're better off going with people who've already had a, an audience with a particular show. If it's not going to no longer be in the air, why not throw them into a different mix? They've already got a good representation out there. They've already got a following. Why not do that to boost your ratings? I mean, I think it's a smart idea. You ain't never uh, lie. I, All right. I I disagree there. I think I think if they could find some way to bring the entire old cast back, I think it would appeal to. A bigger audience. I, I feel like a lot of kids our age never really watched the show, or they saw it on reruns. If they see the old cast, I think that would spike some numbers. Hey, I guess it's, I guess it's you know it's, it's a catch twenty two. You got your pros and your cons. I don't think you'll ever be able to make the, the median happy ever in, in any type of show. See what happened True. when they tried to remake nine hundred two one zero. Yeah, that turned out to be a disaster. <laughs> it is still on, right though. Now. It has lasted way longer than it should have. Let's I get have, a little, uh, let's get, let's talk about this um, uh, Penn State scandal rocking the world, as it were. Um, Ryan Willoughby, you actually went to Penn State. Now, this, this, uh, we've discussed this on the panel before. The Bob Costas interview the other night, uh, I guess what happened was Bob Costas was sitting there with Sandusky's attorney, Sandusky said, well, what if I can, I mean, the, the attorney said, what if I can get Sandusky on, on, the, on the line? And Costas was thinking, um, does he really want to do this? Uh, Ryan Willoughby, do you think this was a smart move or an absurd move? I think it was a terrible move. First and foremost, as a Penn State grad, I was on the panel last week. You know exactly how I feel about this. I love my alma mater to death. But if these allegations are true, it, the guy deserves to rot in prison. That being said, what kind of idiot defense attorney would put your client on a radio interview like that, I mean, the guy openly admitted to showering and playfully touching boys in the locker room, but nothing sexual. What kind of idiot defense attorney is going to allow that to happen? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. This guy should be under complete radio silence. This guy, you know, he shouldn't be talking to anybody. He should wait till he gets his day in court, and then he'll fly for it. Right. And, uh, uh, Danny Dittato, what do you think about the the interview? Did you see it? Uh, I didn't see it, but I've read I've read some articles based upon what he was talking about. You know, his quote was horsing around, or I kindly touched a boy's leg. I mean, I feel like the more he gets out there and starts talking, the worse it makes it look for not only himself but also Penn State because it's showing more exposure he had to the school and its facilities that he was able to use even when he retired some, you know, six, seven years before the incident started occurring. I feel like the attorney was definitely an idiot to agree to this, and Willoughby made an a extremely good point in that it's just it's a, it's a baffle. It just baffles me how he thought that was going to be a good idea because horsing around in a locker room, what are you, you're definitely showering, so there's no clothes or towels, and he goes maybe horse whipping them with a towel. I mean, come on, man. What's, what's yeah. the definition of horsing around? You know, that, that's the whole thing. He didn't admit or deny anything. He, he admits being there with children under the age, severely preteens, and admitting to touching and doing playful gestures, which is, you know, it's not a good, it's not a good look. No, and let, he let, did that. Let me, let me, let me say one thing, though. Let me say one thing here, Riot. It's, it's important to make a distinction between this, this douchebag Sandusky and Penn State as a whole. Because you can't, this can't be an indictment on the entire school. It's a fucking, it's a fantastic institution. It's a great college, and this one guy obviously went out, did something horrific, and he's going to get his for it. He's going to, you know, but it, it's there needs to be a distinction made between one man doing something terrible and completely burying an entire college 
because yeah. of it. There needs to be a distinction and there made been, there. There have been reports of that this week, people losing their internships uh, because they simply, they simply went to Penn State, a fine school. Uh, DTAT, do you think that it should have this effect on the university as well? No, it, it, no, it shouldn't. Just like, you know, somewhat, what is it, 10, 15 years ago, the whole situation with the priests and the Catholic Church going all the way back to the Vatican. One person's action doesn't dictate the entirety of an organization or, in this state, Penn State, you know, it's one person's action. He wasn't even an employee there. Was it stupid to let him use the facilities after the allegation was brought up? Yeah, but hey, listen, Absolutely. You, you, had no, you had no concrete proof. It was word of mouth. There was no video. There was no picture. There was one graduate assistant stating something to an individual, and it's destroyed tons of lives in, in the process. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's, it's all messed up now. Uh, let's, let's move on to the thing rocking – this city, New York City today, uh, just a reminder, in a minute we got Daniel Levi Gomes coming up, so uh, everybody stay tuned for that. Um, but let's, let's get into this uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, today, uh, the, the occupiers are uh, storming bridges and uh, subway stations, and uh, what do you think, uh, do you think that this has been an effective movement? Do you think that it lacks organization. What say you, Danny Dittata? I think it, it lacks extreme organization. I mean, to the point today where people couldn't even use subways without showing corporate ID. So regular individuals need to get from point A to point B. Couldn't even utilize a mass transit operation system without providing corporate ID. So a person who's out of work or you know, works for himself couldn't get on the two three out of Wall Street that live in the area because they were they were being, you know, confused with a Occupy Wall Street person. I, I think it's a tremendous uh, just a tremendous problem for the city and it, it something needs to be done. It, it's not doing anything. They're making themselves they're making the ninety nine percent look like idiots, basically. And uh Brian Willoughby, I know you're a big fan of the protesters, right? Oh yeah, big fan of these guys. No no fucking way, Ryan Holmes. Come on now. I'm tired of this shit. I think it needs to end. I'm not a fan. Uh, you know what? They made a big thing. I, I left my office today because one of the supposed uh, Occupy the Subway stops was the ACE stop on 23rd Street. It was supposed to start at 3. I left the office, went there at 3.30. There were more cops in the subway than passengers. There were no protesters. Nothing was going on. One of these, guys, one of these protesters' biggest arguments is they don't have jobs. So what? Your alternative is to protest people getting, other people who have jobs getting home from their jobs? That doesn't make sense. I... I, I Everybody has their First Amendment right to protest whatever the heck they want, and I agree with that. But it just doesn't seem like a good way of going about it. You're going to piss more people off in the process than allies you're going to make. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I'm, I'm well, tired of it, and I think it should, I, I want it to end. <laughs> um, hey, D-Test, do you know – I'm glad that Willoughby mentioned the cops because, D-Test, do you know how this whole thing has made me feel? A certain, a certain way? way? Mm-hmm. Blazing Rye Radio no longer retains the rights to the Certain Way theme song. Hit the brakes, Florence. Back to you, Ryan, and what's her name? <laughs> All right. Well, I love it. A, I love it. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of maybe not with you guys on this. Uh, a retired police captain from Philadelphia was arrested for simply standing. Uh, police officers dragged a man by his bare chest on the concrete. New York's finest dragged a female protester by her jacket and her backpack. A city councilman was assaulted by the police. A cop told a poor New York reporter that he had to leave the area due to the amount of debris falling from the sky. This was caught on camera. Uh, when the reporter told the officer there was no debris, 
she had no response. News choppers have been banned from flying over Zuccotti Park, further violating freedom of the press. Whether you think Occupy Wall Street is a great movement or is run by idiots, it doesn't take a genius to know that the behavior of the NYPD is unacceptable. And I'm tired of talking about them on the show, and frankly, I'm tired of many things like the Giuliani-implemented racial profiling tactics, atrocities like the cops shooting an innocent man 41 times for reaching for his wallet, and being responsible for hundreds of unwarranted arrests and undeserved injuries of the people the force is supposed to protect. The whole thing has made me feel a certain way, but I'm glad we could debate about it tonight. Danny, Ryan, thank you guys so much for joining the panel. Hey, hey Ryan, thanks on, for man. having me. And, and if I can say one last thing, it's that you call me the runner-up in the Office Olympics. I want you to know next month I will regain the gold medal. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, break a leg with that. Talk to you guys tomorrow. Have a good show. Have a good night. Thanks for having me. Go on. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. That was the Blazing Ride panel. And now for our first guest. My first guest is a talented uh, singer-songwriter. Let's bring him on. This is Daniel Levi Gones. Yeah. I appreciate, appreciate that thunderous applause, Ryan. Absolutely. Uh, where are you calling in from, sir? I am actually in Nashville today, actually south of Nashville, Franklin, Tennessee. And is this is um, that where you're from? Are you from Tennessee? No, I'm from North Carolina, and I'm just here visiting um, a buddy of mine I used to be in a band with is a producer down here, and I've been um, producing – I produce my, my two folk records, and I'm working with a couple other artists in North Carolina, so – I came up for a couple of days to study in their studio, um, just try to learn some stuff, pick up some pick up some pointers. Absolutely, I got to tell you that I, I uh, when I saw the pictures of you, I thought that I did not expect a southern accent because you look like just about everyone in Brooklyn that I know right now. <laughs> is that so? It is. You're you're you know that's the in trendy look that you've got going on there. Um, and from the uh, pictures on your page, I can only assume that you live like an Amish person, and are you planning on moving out of those fields anytime soon? <laughs> yes, I uh, I try to grow all the food from the ground, and no, uh, I I don't even have a garden, unfortunately. I'd like to, um, and actually I haven't spent much time in Brooklyn at all, so I I, uh, I guess I'd I I be shocked to see myself walking all over there if I ever were to travel there. I see. <laughs> You're all over the place. Um, but I like it that way. So now let's see. Uh, your middle name, is it pronounced Levi or Levy? Levi. Levi. So do you only wear Levi's jeans in honor of your middle name? Um, you know, I've thought about making that stand, and it's incidental, but right now, yes. Uh, <laughs> I didn't do it on purpose, but I just, I, right as you asked that, I thought through, yep, I got four pairs of jeans, and they're all Levi's. And the ones so, that you're wearing right now, are they 501, 505, 511, 510? Uh, you know, I'm trying to think. What do what those numbers stand for? <laughs> well, the 511 are the skinny jeans. 510 are the super skinny jeans. 501 are the straight, uh, what do they call them, straight leg. And I'm not sure what the 505 are. Ryan, I'm extremely impressed. How do you, how do you keep up with all this information? Well, because I'm trying to dress like all the people that I see in Brooklyn who look exactly like you. <laughs> well, uh, I think these are not super skinny, but skinny, you know? 
Fair enough. So they're not, probably not, the five eleven. I'm not totally angsty, but I've you know I've got a little bit of grit to my to my <laughs> jean shorts today. <laughs> if you were totally angsty, then it'd be the super skinny, I guess, right? Oh yeah, you got You have to be uncomfortable uh, in order to be legit. So exactly. Um, now, Daniel, I saw you you tweeted that you is it tweeted or tw- is it tweeted tweeted twatted? I, I think it's, I think a tweeter is a speaker that plays mostly treble sounds, and I think it is called tweeted. You tweeted. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stick with tweeters. I saw that you tweeted that you <laughs> recorded your second album in the library on, on Chesapeake Bay, and I, I thought, sir, that you weren't supposed to even speak in the library, let alone record a whole dang album. So did the librarians <laughs> get mad at you, or, or the, you know, the many people that were reading books and studying? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a misleading uh, idea in a way. Um, there's Basically, there's this old library um, that there's no one in it, and it's kind of a one-room deal. I guess it's like mm, 30 feet by 20 feet. Maybe it's probably bigger than that. I'm not good at I'm not good at guessing numbers, but uh, it's kind of a one-room deal with probably I guess it has eight carols in it. You know what I mean? Like little desk stations, and then there's bookshelves in between each one of those, um, and um, some people let me use the library uh, for the recording of the record, and I got to spend a whole year um, recording, which I've which I've never been able to do in any any bands I've been in or any projects I've worked on. Usually, you know, you're paying by the hour, um, and so you, you you know that would cost you know a million dollars or something. So it was an amazing opportunity, and um, the library is situated wow. 50 feet from the water. So I mean, it, I'm looking out the window. From kind of like over my computer, and I'm just seeing Chesapeake Bay right out the window. I mean, it was totally idyllic. I couldn't believe it. That sounds beautiful. There's a. Yeah, are you a Counting Crows fan at all? Yeah, yeah, I love the Counting Crows. There's a song of theirs. I don't know if you know it. It's called uh, "I Wish I Was a Girl." And every time I hear Chesapeake Bay, I hear that line. I was born on the shores of. Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, and Virginia are faded away. I love that line. I need to listen to that song. I haven't heard that one. I mostly have heard. Ah. I mostly have listened to August and Everything After. That's the record I spent time with. Oh well, you know what? That I, that actually came up in uh, at work today. The uh, that album they did a great um, live concert version of that album on like the tenth anniversary or something. Uh, you should check that out. It's awesome. Oh, I'd love to look that up. Yeah, that's sweet. Yeah, man. Let's get back to you. Um, now, you, uh, did you get your idea to record your second album in a library from Bon Iver recording his album in a cabin? No, I get that. Um, you know, I get that a lot, actually. I did not. This just this opportunity just came up, and I thought, man, I can't pass this up. But I think there's a lot of similarities in terms of um, – I think the sound that I was making before I recorded for a year up there had a lot less kind of haunting elements to it. I think my first my first record I just did in a basement in North Carolina and it kind of sounds like that. It just it's really stripped down and um kind of Bob Dylan like Bob Dylan esque. Um you know, except for I'm not a lyrical genius. Um uh, I don't think but this this new record it kind of has these haunting ethereal 
elements, and I, I noticed. I mean, I, Bonnie Iver is a big uh, influence on me in my production style, mm-hmm. and um, the record is called my new record is called Brother Stranger, and um, it deals with a lot of themes of how frustrating it is that we can't fully know another person. You know, um, you know, we all even if we experience the exact same thing. Uh, it's our experience is completely different, and at the same time, it feels like you know all of us as humans are connected. So, I mean, that may sound like a strange answer to your question, but I think it made a lot of sense to me that these haunting elements made it onto this record um, because my setting was extremely beautiful and at the same time totally lonely, which I think it reminds me of that paradox of human interaction. Um, and I think Bonnie Vera experienced that in his in his recording session as well. As he's kind of like, from what I understand, he's mourning, you know, the loss of his band, the loss of his girl. Um, and I think I think my songs came out of a similar place of being humbled by circumstances. So that's uh, really, yeah, that's really interesting. The uh, I and yes, I stand corrected with the pronunciation of his name, Bonnie Vera, not Bon Iver, as many of of us ignorant folks call it. Um, no, look. But, I have hey. a friend who's I have a friend who's like a super fan, and I said Bon Iver, and he basically kind of like wrote a dissertation about how I was uneducated on the subject. Uh, <laughs> it, it's you know it's it's uh, it means good winter. I learned in this in this lecture I received, and so I try to say <laughs> it in honor of my buddy who really cares about that sort of thing. So no no offense right. here if you mispronounce it. Fair enough. And um, you just touched on this, so let's let's talk about this a little bit. I, I read that the uh, your album it talks about the loneliest moments of the human experience. So, would you say that this is a lighthearted album? <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I, I think it uh, is an extreme album. So I think there are moments of both, and I think that the uh, I guess my understanding of um, what it means to love another person. Um, it, it would mean to, you know, mourn with people who are mourning and rejoice with people when they're rejoicing. And so my hope was to incorporate both elements of that. And so even in even in hopeful moments to try to communicate, um, I guess communicate uh, the, the beauty of loneliness, but also, you know, um, the pain that's involved, and so I don't know if that makes sense or not, but I, uh, I think both, but but I do think it's it's pretty serious um, in subject matter. There's a, there's a lot of like, uh, I, I somehow I think that most of us relate to kind of this feeling like there's something wrong with us, or like we're a black sheep, um, and at the same time thinking that everybody else must be wrong, you know, and I must be right. Um, you know, something's wrong with everyone else, but at the same time, we know something's wrong with us. And anyway, all these themes of family relationships, and um, I don't know, maybe that answer didn't make didn't make much sense. But uh, no, I don't well, know. Um, would you say that? Uh, what would you say are the loneliest moments of human experience? You mentioned that uh, you you were coming from a a humbled place. So did, did you go through some trauma before recording this album? Um, yeah, I think uh, I think that I've been eating humble pie for a couple of years. 
So I I was in this band, you know, and we're touring full-time. We're doing all this stuff. And we were based out of Nashville, and that's the one of the guys I'm visiting. is He was the lead singer, and the band was called The War. It's kind of indie pop rock. And, um, you know, so we're, we're uh, you know, we're, we're selling, you know, we're just doing well. We're doing well, and we don't have a manager, don't have a label, and things are working out. And we're, you know, we're playing a couple hundred shows a year, and it's just good. And, and so then um, we kind of decided to take a break, and I'm like, you know, I don't want to do music anymore. And uh, long story short, I'm, you know, I'm spending more time in writing what I think are the most thoughtful songs I've ever written and, um, just working really hard to make it the most excellent I can. And I'm playing at places that we sold out as a band and 30 people are coming and all I can hear is beer bottles and people talking and, um, you know, I can barely hear my voice in the monitor. And so it just was like, um, just kind of a soul searching time where I wonder, you know, is, you know, am I made for this? Like I thought, like I thought I was, and like, I, you know, I thought since I was 14 or 12, when I heard the white album, I'm thinking, Oh, I got to do that. I think. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that's humbling. And I think also, I don't know if you've ever tried to save anybody. Um, but I was in this relationship where I, I um, this person had the hardest story I've ever heard. Uh, and I'm not going to air any of her laundry, but basically I thought I could, I thought that I could by effort, um, and by trying to care for her, save her from all these kind of demons and, um, really dark stuff, man. And, and that just, I don't know if you've ever tried that, Ryan, but it just doesn't work. I'll just tell you now. I wouldn't yeah. try that if I were you. So anyway, kind of coming out of all that, I think I'm, I think I was ready to express the fullness um, of sadness. And I think there's, you know, there's a time for that. And uh, I think that, I, I think what I've come to in the, you know, in, in the end, going through all this um, thought about, uh, human experience in the, these loneliest moments, I think what I'm realizing is that hope is actually more substantial than despair. Um, and so that's why I said that, you know, that the album is not just kind of heavy, dark, depressing, because I, I really think it comes through um, this realization that I've had that, uh, you know, that hope is a deeper thing and more intense and beautiful thing as well than despair. I wasn't sure about that two years ago. I like that. Hope is deeper than despair. I like that a lot. Um, I uh, I have been in situations, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know that they're, they've ended where, yes, you, you know, you try as hard as you can to, to save somebody, um, but, uh, it, 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 you know, you can't, you can only change yourself. You can't change other people. So did you feel that you were, during that time, um, getting sort of sucked into that world, this, of, this, you know, these dark, disturbing things happening to the person that you were trying to help. Yeah, I think I think what happens is you kind of take it on, and you're you're trying mm-hmm. to carry this this thing that no no one can carry, you know, no human can carry. The cruelty that is that's possible uh, in this world is just mind numbing, and so. For me, I'd never even been exposed to things like this, you know, just abuse of different kinds and, um, you know, then then someone's um, parents telling them, uh, don't ever talk about what happened to you because we don't want you to embarrass our family. Like this kind of stuff, just things really like truly evil things. I, I think I'd never even been exposed to that. I have, I have a wonderful family and I've had um, friends who cared about me um, pretty well most of my life, so... 
I think I just didn't even I didn't realize the full weight uh, of cruelty that's so personal. And I think what what I did it just sort of um, put a dark tint on on what I saw. It just things looked really bad to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I was trying to carry carry all that, and it, the world just kind of looked like a grotesque place um, to me. But that, that's not really it's not actually that way. I think I was trying to shoulder some kind of burden that I'm not meant to shoulder, and that I, I never can. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, that, that's kind of well, kind of where I came out of. Mm-hmm. It's good that you found a way to you know to turn it into a uh, uh, positive thing in your music and your your new album. It's called Brother Stranger. Uh, what is the what is the significance of the title? You didn't just locate your long lost brother, did you? <laughs> no, no, I, that would be wonderful. I'd love to have a brother, but I um basically Brother Stranger. It, kind of you know it's a concept record and and the title uh really in in the simplest terms it is kind of just what it sounds like um you know i don't i don't know you ryan but but because we're both humans you know we're connected in all these ways um but at the same time we approach each other you know we ought to approach each other with humility because we have no idea what the other person's experienced and so um the, the the record is a lot of like narrative songs that kind of play with this tension. So, you know, we're all connected and yet no man knows another man's sorrow. So mm-hmm. that, that, that leads us to approach people with humility and also with kind of a, what a friend of mine would call a posture of listening, you know, so you're kind of, you're kind of, so anyway, it's like the opposite of judgment. You're listening to what people are saying. You're trying to understand where they're coming from because you know, you're connected, um, but you can be humble about that connection and not think, oh, I know, I know, you know, I know what you've experienced. I've been there. Um, yes and no, you know, you've never truly been there. Um, so anyway, that's kind of brother stranger is the way I sort of view everyone that I meet and talk to. Um, one of the lines on on the record, um, you know, it, it says, I love my father as much as I can. And I hate my mother for the darkness she passed down. And um, my mom always, my mom always, if she ever hears that song, she calls me and says, "Now, just tell me again, this isn't about me, right?" And I'm always like, "Yes, mom, it's definitely not about you." But I guess the, the point there is, um, you know, we, even the people that were so, um, yeah, you know, even people in our family, you know, we're we don't totally, we can't totally condense them into, you know, a paragraph description or whatever. So that's brother stranger. Wow. So, so why then um, the line about the mother, is that, are you writing from somebody else's perspective there, or why that line? Well, you know, I, I heard this uh, interview with Bob Dylan, and he said, if I could explain it, I, I, would, you know, I wouldn't have to write the song. But, but I can tell you, I can give you a little insight into it. Um, okay. You know, our, our parents have such an effect on who we are, I think as we get older, we realize that more and more, that's been the case for me. And um, I hate my mother for the darkness she passed down. There seems to be these sort of hang-ups that get cycled down through the bloodstream or something. Um, So maybe, you know, maybe, you know, maybe your mother tends to worry or feel anxious or want to fix everything around her. Um, And then maybe all of a sudden you realize 
crap, I, I feel anxious. I, I want to fix everything around me. Um, and, and I think I've seen, so yes, it is from other people's perspective, and yes, it is from mine. Um, there is power in telling a story that is universal and specific. Um, and so that's kind of, that's why I'm drawn to folk music. I mean, I, you know, it's like this music of story, and the stories are specific, but somehow you can read yourself into the story, and it just creates a space for thinking and for, uh, I don't know, for communication and for relatability. I, I just think stories are really where um, the most resonant truths are communicated, in my experience. I mean, that's that's what I've experienced myself. Uh-huh. You know, I noticed who do, who do I listen to and why, you know, often has to do with um, the relatability of the story, even if it's a spe- even if the details are not the same, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, uh, this is, uh, you mentioned uh, Bob Dylan a couple times in the interview. Who, who is that? <laughs> who is Bob Dylan? He, yeah, he's a songwriter and you know, he's a folk <laughs> uh, singer, Robert Zimmerman. Isn't it interesting how Jacob went with Dylan and not Zimmerman? He kept that stage name. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, but I mean, I would too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. So, uh, interesting in a way, but smart. We, we talked about the uh, sort of the, the, the emotional impact of your music, but let's, let's talk a little bit about the craft, um, your particular process. Uh, one of the quotes that I read about you uh, reads, Daniel Gomes does not write, mix, perform, and produce his music so much as he mines it. Now, where do you mine it, and then who writes, mixes, and performs your music? I'm very confused. <laughs> Those are great questions. I think the songs, in my experience, songs are received. Um, it's it's totally bizarre, um, but I've, uh-huh. I've heard a couple of interviews with some of my favorite songwriters, and, and they kind of feel similarly about it or having similar experiences for me sometimes i'll wake up with a song i don't really understand it or i'll just be walking and all of a sudden i'll hear a melody in my mind and i do have to write it down you know i do have to make space for it to come out but it it does seem like it's received um Mm -hmm. and i think when this that person said minds it i think i usually send my lyrics to i have a buddy who's a poet and uh, a couple other friends who are writers and so i'll send them the lyrics to them, and they'll kind of provide pushback. Usually it's extremely painful, but it is kind of like mining. I mean, they'll just kind of say there's a there's something inside of this line, but you sure have not found it yet. <laughs> so uh-huh. after I receive a song, I kind of spend this time refining it and, uh, you know, I guess uh, I would like to meet the people, I would like to meet whoever it is that is bringing these out you know, bringing these ideas out of me, but it feels more like I'm opening something that's in, you know, that's been given to me. I don't, I don't totally understand it. It's mysterious. Right. Uh, you know, the whole, uh, creating, uh, your music sounds like a really unique process and, and you use your surrounding environment tables and the, the spines of old leather books to create earthy mm-hmm. sounds. It kind of sounds like you're a, a Foley artist for movies. How, how does this work, um, in the recording studio. Um, now, do you mean do you mean the process of how these sounds kind of come out? Yeah, like how do you get the idea to use these types of uh, implements as instruments? I think 
it's it's really the studio is a very inspiring place for me, and I think particularly being near the uh, near the water. I don't know why water just stirs me up. I I, I uh, yeah, pun not intended. <laughs> uh, but I I remember thinking when I was recording that the songs sounded too small. That that they're you know I was like, gosh, I need something that's outside of what's on these so far. Uh-huh. And I just kind of looked around, and I thought, I wonder what it sounds like if I hit this stuff. So I started hitting different things, and um, much of the time I'd kind of get in the zone, and I would be adding things one at a time. I would hear, oh, this needs X, Y, and Z. Oh, this needs some kind of like, you know, some kind of crack right here on the two and four or something like that, you know. And so then I'd hit That's the table, the and I'd kind of in a recording studio. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, this this needs some kind of pop or whatever. So then I would, I would uh-huh. kind of go into the zone and then a couple hours later I'd listen back and I, I would have added elements one at a time and it would result in this kind of whole percussion sound, like a auxiliary drum set. And I'm like, Whoa, you know, it's just inspiration is a, is a fascinating thing. But, um, and I'd have people drop by the studio and I kind of be like, okay, clap, clap with me right now. And so, um, you know, random people traveling through. There was a, a cello player from Slovakia who was performing near where this library is, and I, I just kind of went for it. And you know, he's kind of he's world renowned. His name's Joseph Luptag. Um, I just kind of went for it. I was nervous, but I just said, "Hey, I'm a folk singer, and I'm recording a record near here. Would you come and uh, lay something down?" And basically, I just told him the key of the song. And he just played through it two times, and then he had to fly back to Slovakia. And I just cut cut it up into a million pieces and kind of put it in where it should go. That's from the song Albatross. Um, sure. But, I mean, it was a really kind of a wild process. I feel like it stretched me in every way. Um, but I think the reason I used the surroundings was because the songs felt – it just felt like they weren't being done justice. I felt like, man, just this guitar and me singing sounds lame. Um, and like it just sounded inappropriate. If that makes sense. Inappropriate. Um, what's the what's the craziest thing you've used as an instrument? Would you say? Hmm. I'd probably say. Oh yeah. One time I was playing a cardboard box, and uh, I was playing a cardboard box and hitting the table which was on my left, and the cardboard box was on top of a bookshelf on my right. So as I was playing it, the cardboard box was sliding away from me, but I had to keep, you know, I was in the middle of tracking, so I wanted to keep the tape because it felt right. And uh-huh. so I was stretching further and further. <laughs> uh, and I actually used that take on the record, so that uh, that was totally bizarre. I was like, oh, what am I doing right now? The guys in my band would just be cracking up because this is just totally ghetto right now. But it was it was it ended up sounding good for some reason. Uh, so you wound up just like laying across the floor trying to reach for that box in the end. Yeah, I was kind of like, I was kind of stretched as far as I could go by the last, uh, you know, by the last beat, but it worked out. <laughs> um, a couple things, uh, Daniel. Uh, the the Counting Crow song I mentioned before it is not "I Wish I Was a Girl." It's Saint Robinson and his Cadillac Dream. They're all the same album. They're like back to back on the same album. Apologies for that. That's the song you should no, check no out. Worries. What um, is the album? And, uh, the album is This Desert Life. It's uh okay. I, I think I think that's my favorite album, even over August and everything after. It's it's amazing wow. that album. Yeah. yeah, I'll check that out. 
Absolutely. Um, and what you were mentioning before about having been in a band and, you know, now you're doing your thing, um, that reminded me, uh, I have a friend who, he was in a, a really successful hardcore band um, a, a long time ago, and then we all lived in California around the same time, and uh, he, and then he decided to leave that band, and I thought that was absurd because he had written the songs, you know, he could get the royalties, he was the lead guitarist and the songwriter, etc. Um, and then he, like, <clears throat> for a couple of years, he was just basically trying to find his new self musically, and it mm-hmm. turned out now he, he has one of the, like, most popular uh, electronic music bands around. Um, so I feel like this, and he, what he did was he went to Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and you're already dressed for that, so I think you're, you're on a similar path. <laughs> <laughs> man, I need to spend some time up there, man. I I don't really fit in where I'm at, so maybe that'll, this will work better up there. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I want to yeah, break our listeners I'm, off with. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm in kind of a similar process, just sorting through. You know what 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 sound will I end up with that will uh, that will resonate? You know with with some people, and and I think you know I think I'm on the way there. So hopefully, we'll keep moving. Awesome, man. Um, let's see. Okay, we are out of time. I do want to break our listeners off with uh, uh, one of your songs before we bring on Charity, though. Um, if you would, we have uh, Do You and I'd Better Take Off My Shoes. Which would you rather I play? I think Do You. Okay, let's do that. Um, <laughs> uh, check him out, <laughs> DanielLeviGones.com. And uh, you got any shows or anything you want to plug before we go? I'm playing in Texas uh, November 30th through December 5th. So if anybody's in Texas, um, feel free to come on out um, or just keep, you know, check with the website. There'll be some more up there. I appreciate you and having me around. Where in Texas are you playing? Uh, there's five different shows. So I'll be in Austin a couple nights and then Houston, San Marcos, and I think Dallas as well. Awesome. All right, Daniel. Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for doing the show. And, uh, uh, yeah, break a leg with with your your career. Uh, Thanks so much, Ron. I appreciate it. Absolutely, sir. Take care. Have a good night. This is Daniel Levi. Take care, man. With Do You.
Yes. There you are. Okay, I'm so sorry. I muted my microphone accidentally. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. How are you doing? That must have been uh, quite a bar mitzvah in hyperspace just now. Uh, now, okay, my first <laughs> um, question for you, Charity. Are you related to Tracy Chapman? I am not. I am like as white as the snow, <laughs> so not at all. Yeah, couldn't be. But there's so many Chapmans out there. They're like, like you know, Chapman musicians like Stephen Curtis Chapman and I think there's more. I love Tracy Chapman, but nope. We're not I don't know anybody Tracy. Thing. Who's the Stephen who's the Stephen character? Stephen Curtis Chapman is a guy he runs that 
China adoption thing um, where uh-huh. he adopted uh-huh. that girl from China. And it's I can't remember what it's called, but it's really big, and so he's gotten a lot of people adopting kids from China. I see. And he's so, super famous. <laughs> um, well, speaking of super famous, your song, um, I'm now realizing that, you know, the listeners didn't hear my introduction for you at all, and I said, you're a talented singer-songwriter whose music <laughs> has been on Oprah and The X Factor. So let's talk about uh, the If I Could Fly uh, was on The X Factor, um, The X Factor UK and Ugly Betty. How did you get involved in all this? Well, it's actually the most exciting thing is it's on X Factor now. Currently, X Factor US what's what's playing mm-hmm. now, which is it was amazing on the X Factor UK um, because it was so surprising. I actually don't know how they got my music. The producer says that they found me on iTunes, but I just really find that so hard to believe because there's like I don't know six million billion artists on there. How do you find <laughs> me? They don't know how. And yeah. then Ugly yeah. Betty, I got. Um, through uh, a library, a music library, where they store music, and then they place that. So that was fun. But the X Factor UK launched X Factor US, which is now playing as the – they've played it like five times, I think, where you go through onto the next round, and half the people stand and cry, and the other half, they can't believe that they're going on. It's really kind of a great moment. And have you been watching X Factor at all? You know, I watched, like, the – Maybe the second episode, I think. I think that's all I've had the time to see, but I liked it. Well, the X Factor, there's an artist named Drew who's 14, and they played my song as she went on, and she's really popular. So they, um, so that's been great because that, you know, everybody who there's like I don't know four million people who've looked at her link of her making it going on, and that's where my song is playing, which is great. Wow. Yeah. So well, you you are the soundtrack to these these people's dreams right now. Um. Yeah. I guess that would be <laughs> making it uh, big, but um. Yeah. A couple of them. Yes. Their dreams and some of them their their utter nightmares because you know <laughs> half of them are moving off and half of them are moving on. But I'm focusing on the ones that are moving on because those are it is really fun to watch. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I've always preferred watching people fail in that the sort of competition shows, but I think that's just my sort of sick. So so I would probably, <laughs> if I had put the music or scored these people's horrific moments, I'd probably watch those over and over. <laughs> no, it's kind of awful, I'm telling you, but um, but you know, my song says, you know, and I would cry and I would pray and it says these things and then, you know, sometimes they'll show people doing that. So they really have timed it pretty perfectly. And um, when my song ends saying, and I will go and tell the world about you, and she, Drew, is the little girl is looking at her dad. It's so sweet. I'm telling you, even you saying that you like the, the sad moments, I think you even might be moved with your cold heart of steel because it really is <laughs> it, kind of sweet. Ah, uh, that is sweet. Um, and y- your, um, th- that same song, uh, if I Could Fly, you say, was the uh, most emotional song you've ever written. Uh, is that because it made you the most money? Um, no, that does make me emotional, though, yes, because every time I get a small royalty check, I think, ah! But uh, no, because my band blew up in, like, VH1 Behind the Music style. Um, mm-hmm. Did you ever watch VH1 Behind the Music? Tell me you did. Who hasn't? Okay, thank you. Okay, so, you know, it's all sex, drugs, rock and roll, 
the bands implode yeah. from the inside. Total like ACDC, I hate you, you hate me, let's get our lawyers. So my band blew up, and I thought that my life was over. I know, sounds stupid, but you they're like your spouses. You, you feel married to them, and you all part and go your separate ways, and everybody hates each other. And it was awful. And out of that um, time, I somehow I wrote that song. And I kind of dreamed it, so I had a dream, and then... If I was dreaming like, this sounds crazy, I was dreaming Coke commercial. I don't know why. I was like flying through the air, you know, and I would go and tell the world about you, you know, like holding a Coke. It was crazy. And I got up in the morning and I was like, I felt like I had the chorus to the song. And then I went over and started playing it. And it was pretty easy to write. I don't know why. It was just, it was a very emotional time. You know, I can imagine that, I could imagine Coke being the reason most bands get into this behind-the-music situation. You used it to get out of it. I did, yeah. I mean, I kind of, yeah, I mean, I didn't even know anything would ever happen with that song. It was just really moving for me to write it, and then I found mm-hmm. it, I, like, sang it for my best friend and, you know, my parents, and they were all moved, too, which, of course, is not saying much because your best friend and your parents will say that you're amazing even if you're terrible. So mm-hmm. then, you know, as it as I recorded it and played it more than you know, I found a few other people liked it as well. So that was great, and it's kind of redemptive because it came out of this um, for me, which was which is a, a small minor tra- tragedy, tragedy, yeah, small minor <laughs> tragedy of the band blowing up, and you know, I just licked my wounds for like a year, just stayed home and cried and you know, didn't know what to do with myself and felt sorry for myself and everything. Yeah, and out of that came a great song, I think. And yeah. and is that when you, you thought, I'm I'm going to write a happy song if it kills me? Oh, no, no. That was then after I, um, so I kind of pulled out for a little while and wrote some music, and then I decided someday I'm going to be 40 and I won't have a record deal or kids. So I bet I'm married. So I bet I was like, oh, well, let's see, maybe we should have a kid. And I never really wanted one. I was like, okay. So we just thought, oh, if it doesn't work, then fine. We'll, I'll just keep going with the whole rock star thing. And then I got pregnant, but I got really super, super sick. I mean, sick. I was on a feeding tube in the hospital, and my hair fell out. It's like a total bizarre reaction to pregnancy. I'm allergic to pregnancy. And um, so after that, <laughs> I came out, and I like, looked kind of like a war victim and felt like one. And so then I was like, just kind of, you know, a lot of sad songs and everything. I'm like, I'm going to write a happy song if it kills me. So I, then I wrote a happy song and as an experiment for myself, and it was very challenging, and I kind of liked it when it was done. So I've written a couple and, and of times. Which was the first happy song that you wrote? The first I feel happy song was I Feel Fine for me. I wrote that um, in January. So now it's mm-hmm. November. Yeah, I wrote it in January and recorded it like in March, I think. And then, um, so pretty new for me. And and it was, it just sounds stupid, but it was really hard to write a happy song because I wasn't in a particularly happy place. But um, but it was, it was good. And then after that, I don't know. See, I just started feeling better, and you know, things turned around. And I feel like I'm gonna survive, and and I did. So that felt that my baby survived. It was all pretty miraculous. And then, you know, things are looking up. Every day I'm not pregnant is a good day. (laughs) 
Well, that's great. Um, I, I <laughs> wake up every day here. and say the same exact thing, yes. Um, <laughs> okay, now, well, we have that in common. <laughs> uh, the, the song you just mentioned, I Feel Fine, it, it's a great song that, that um, to me, it seems like it's about finding love. And if I feel fine is about finding love, why do you only feel fine? Why not great? Well, I wanted it to be like, it could be great, but it's said while I'm smiling, you know, when I'm singing it, uh-huh. it's, ah, I feel fine, I feel fine, and it really is fine, not like, um, you know, go away, I really don't mean I feel fine, but really, 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 I feel fine, because, you know, I can't sleep, can't thinking about tomorrow, and like, getting to see you, and just the happiness of that falling in love time and your feeling of that and just feeling so fine. I just, like, everything's good and in the world, and the world looks brighter, and and it felt that way to me. I, so I, I guess, like I don't that. know, why not good? Why not good? I guess fine just seemed more like what I would answer. You're like, how are you doing? <laughs> I feel fine. I, I really do. Or maybe you meant it like, I feel fine, like, you well, that's what I'm little. saying. I didn't mean it like that. If you listen to the song, I, <laughs> I, I am. It is really, it is really a happy moment. Well, that's awesome. And uh, your song, your song, "I Hear Nothing." Is that about the struggles of America's deaf community? Ah, that's funny. Uh, the "I Hear Nothing" <laughs> is um, wow. You did your research. That's good. That's off my first album. Um, that is a song about. Ooh, okay. That's a song about. I don't play the bass. I play the piano and the guitar. I'm kind of a hack, so I just use it as a writing tool to write songs. I grew up playing the piano. My mom always made me practice. I come from a musical family, and playing the guitar was like it was so difficult for me because I'm so uncoordinated. And so I, my friend lent me this bass, and I was just, wow, this is fascinating. So I just picked it up, and it was easy to write a song. I just plucked out, like, bass notes on it, and it had this big, long silence. I hear nothing but the silence. You know, and then I would, like, flip the, the um, string and then, you know, sing another line. And... I don't know. That's where that song came from, and I'm not exactly sure. It's the only song I've ever written on the bass. I gave the bass back after that and said, <laughs> enjoy. Um, but it out of that came a song. I, and I, it's the weirdest thing. You never know like where a song will come from. Wow. That's so Sometimes it's from... like a line you're writing down. You know, like you just think of a line, and you write it down on a little scrap of paper, and, and you put it in your pocket, and then... You come across it days later, and and you look at it, and you're like, oh, there's there's something here. I I I can I feel this. I can connect with this. This is you know. And then you start filling in the gaps around it, in the front, in the back, and mm-hmm. it comes into a song. And I think that's kind of what happened to me while playing the bass. Like I had one one line, maybe. If I was even lucky, mm-hmm. I had one line. And a lot of wow. silence. And at that time, I was living in a house that had no heat. And no indoor plumbing. Well, no indoor. It had an outdoor, very, very, very nice porta potty, and it was the most like bizarre arrangement. It was on this beach, 11-acre uh, estate overlooking the ocean, but it was a red tagged house, and they needed somebody to watch it. So I lived there. It was freezing. I was in my hat. I would open the oven and put my feet in it 
and play my guitar or the bass because it was so cold because there was no heat. And then, <laughs> I mean, it's like so crazy, but it was a great time because I lived kind of on the ocean, so I could walk around and we could, yeah, it was huge. It's a huge property and it was amazing, but it had, you know, its blessings and its curses without having heat. But you just kind of got used to, like, I would come in the door and put on a winter coat and hat and gloves and then just take mm-hmm. them off to play piano or guitar. So I wrote that song during that time. And a wow. bunch of those songs off that album while I was living there. That's all those acres and there, there wasn't one real bathroom? No, because the house in Malibu, there, which is where I went to school at Pepperdine University, there's, um, they're on a septic system. I went they're to Pepperdine. Like, you went to Pepperdine? No, I'm just kidding. Continue. Okay, okay. All right, anyway, so they don't, <laughs> it's a plumbing's all kind of uh, suspicious around there. So, yeah, they don't have, they didn't have indoor plumbing because the house was built in 1940. Coolest house, amazing, made of stone, but free easing. That sounds really beautiful and awful at the same time. It was. I was both thankful and, like, mad sometimes. I mean, I had, you know, it was the whole, was it Joe Crocker? I Sometimes I complain. I have no right. Wait. I have no, I, sometimes I have no, I can't complain, but sometimes I still do. It was uh-huh. that, you know, that, like, I'm living here for free, but it's so freezing, you know, I want to stick my head in the oven to warm it up. I mean, we would just, like, sort of crowd around the oven. I would, you know, it was just so crazy, but so freezing. Uh, but yet it was free, I just, and here I'm living in Malibu. Like, you wow. can't beat that. So uh, it has, it has yeah, trade-offs. It, yeah. I, I think you just said Joe Crocker. I think you meant Joe Walsh. Do I mean Joe Walsh? Thank you. Okay, I mean Joe Walsh. Thank you for the grip. I'm not sure who Joe... Crocker is. Did you mean Cocker? <laughs> I mean, is, is it Joe Cock? What, what's his last name? Joe, Joe Cocker, Cocker and Joe Walsh. I don't know Joe Crocker. <laughs> I think it is Joe Walsh, and I probably shouldn't misquote a famous superstar rock star, but yeah, yeah that line. I'm going to quote that line. <laughs> yeah, it happens. That's um, okay. Yes, I know exactly what's funny. You're talking about life's been good. I can't complain, but sometimes yes. I still do life's been good to me so far. Yes. yes, yes, yes. That's it. That's exactly it. That's my sentiment exactly at that moment. <laughs> um, speaking of great lines, uh, your line, Hello, Solitude, You Visit Me Too Much, is a great lyric. It's depressing, but great. Why don't you stop <laughs> inviting solitude over? <laughs> that was um, That's during the band days, and okay. I was... Yeah, so let's see. But I think I was up at night obsessing, which probably many musicians do, and probably non-musicians, but I don't know. It seems to be kind of go with the territory. So up obsessing about something, I don't know. And it's just, there you are, in the dark, alone, sitting in your living room or your oven or whatever the case may be, and <laughs> and there you are. It's just solitude. Um, and I remember having night after night of that. Like, being in the band was super stressful. I mean, I had so many fun moments, but at least for me, I mean, I know, that's what people say. It was so stressful playing out in Hollywood, and you, like, bleed yourself to go out there. And in L.A., you have to pay to play, so you go out, you have to bring a certain number of people, and if you don't bring enough people, then they charge you as a band for playing because there's so many bands here that, you can have four or five a note in a night, and they're all pretty good bands, you know. So 
getting your friends, begging and pleading your friends to come out. So it's just like, it's so stressful. And I think it really caused a lot of anxiety for me. I am so glad that that time is over. I think it was the best for all of us that we split up because I think they went on to do other things. And I heard from one of the bandmates like three weeks ago, and it was so great. And he was doing great, and and there was no animosity, and it was really wonderful to reconnect. And he's living in Florida, and it was great. But I think um, it was excruciating at the time, but ended up being a really good thing because I'm sure they went on to other stuff too. I yeah. looked them up, yeah. but I'm sure they did. You know, this guy did, and he went on to do other things, and he was super happy. It sounds like things, so, you, you, they had a way of working out then. Um, and they you, did. Uh, uh, you know, I've heard the term uh, worship music. How how would you, you describe what worship music means? Well, that was from this really cool church that I went to called the Malibu Vineyard, which used to be in existence, obviously, in Malibu. And it had the most amazing people. Jason Wade of Lifehouse came out of there, and he actually taught me guitar. He is so funny. Oh, really? So nice. Yeah. <laughs> I always tell him, yeah, it was just such a, it's so funny. Um, he's so laid back. It's so cool. And so we kind of all grew up together in Malibu, and um, he, and Kate Kendall Payne, I don't know if you know her, and a singer called Kate Miner, and a bunch of other singers came out of this big, amazing church. And so it had this sound system that was multi-million dollar sound system, and they, we could use it. So we just recorded a live worship album, which is just a bunch of um, modern-day hymns that I wrote and um, then played it with the band live and recorded it. And out of that came an album. And then right after, like, the day it came on, quote, unquote, the market, the church blew up, is VH1 behind the music style. So sort of <laughs> the, the pastors hated each other. Everybody was getting lawyering up. And it, literally the day I, like, laid it out on the table for the church people to buy, and then it blew up. And oh, it was just like, oh, man, okay. And so after that, I didn't really do much with the album, but I, since I already made it, I put it up on iTunes, and, and then a couple of churches are playing some of those songs. There's a song in there that I really like called Everyone Who Rents to You Makes It, mm-hmm. and it's just super simple and about, you know, everybody who runs to God makes it. He won't. He's not going to reject you. He's not going to say you suck or anything. I mean, it's God. So, you know the creator he's not gonna push you away and i just i don't know i like that line and again another line and had that um wrote a little song in there so that's probably like my favorite song out of there that seems to be the one that most people uh, connect with as well cool is it is it hard when you're writing um as we described it worship music is it hard uh finding a middle ground with doing the worshiping and and providing catchy tunes at the same time? No, not for me. I mean, like, you know, I mean, like if you were Hindu or Buddhist or whatever you are, you're still, it's still you. So whatever your religious persuasion is, I don't look at those as separate. It's just part of who I am, you know, growing up in the church. And, um, and I'm sure it is for, you know, in Los Angeles there's like, 
it's like the UN here. I mean, everyone is a different race and a, a different creed, and I, mean, I love it. But it is um, irksome to some people. But I, I personally love that, and that's how I look at it. So writing that worship record was like a time period in my life. Um, I don't really write that worship songs anymore right now. Um, I write, um, you know, rock singer-songwriter rock music, and I think that's what I do best. But um, but I'm, like, happy for people to download the worship songs <laughs> if they would like to. And um, I'm thrilled for that, and they're welcome to download the record, though, you know, that seems like um, – those are like like different time periods of my life, and I'm on to like the, the next thing. I just wrote a song about wanderlust. Uh-huh. I haven't I haven't released yet, but my plug, my faithful plug. If you go on my website, you can download a song for free. It's new. It's out, not even out yet. Called Wait and See. It's not my wanderlust song, but it's my song about going for it. And I think everybody can feel that way. I think about really wanting to do something, and it starts out um, on the train that's safe and sound um, on the track. You know, I don't know where, why I'm doing this, why I'm going over. No regrets, no, no rewind. You can't do it over again, you know. And then um, you'll have to hear the song. But that's the. You can download it for free, and then I have another song that I'm gonna release here in a couple of days, and put up on iTunes called um, "Where the Road Goes," and it's about just like taking off to Mexico mm-hmm. for no good reason. Just just going okay. down there just because the road goes down there and just to mm-hmm. like see the world and total wanderlust song. So th- those are, that's I feel like that's where I'm at right now. Just those songs are kind of what's coming out at this time. What is this term you keep using? Wanderlust or wanderlust? Wanderlust. Yeah, it means wanting to roam. Wanting to just go and, you know, see the world or get in your car. I mean, don't you ever just want to get in your car and you just want to drive and you just want to go someplace new and and for no reason, just to, like, see a new area or you're kind of sick of this life? You want to go try something else? But Well, no, hard, and let me explain why. The reason why I do not have that feeling is because I, I lived in Los Angeles, for two years, and I never want to enter a car again. Okay. <laughs> that is exactly true, actually, because you have to be a career driver, as I say out here. If you're going to live out here, you gotta, you got to love driving. you got to love your car. I live in my car. So um, that, not for real, but you know what I mean. Uh, that You just do. Yes, yeah. I understand. But still, you want to. <laughs> I want to get in my car, and I want to drive yeah. across the mountains and just – go away from here and I think I don't know I think it's uh the the urban is it the urban dream the rural dream yeah the rural dream when you live in you live in the city and you just want to get out you want to escape it and then of course when you're in the country like I grew up in Colorado all you want to do is come to the city <laughs> it's just, where in Colorado did you grow I grew up in Fort Collins okay um my my BFF is from um, Denver. He's from right out. He's from Englewood, right outside Denver. Yeah, Englewood. That's a that's a that's a rough area. Can be, but um, uh, but I love Denver. Is it really? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, a lot. You know, can be. Uh, 
he uh, he and I actually met when we were both in Los Angeles and miserable driving. So we, it was good because <laughs> L.A. brought us together. Um, but Charity, we are going to. What did you say? Yeah, that is good. L.A. can bring you together. It's a connecting town. Well, that's the thing. It's <laughs> the thing that I found out about it was that it once you get there, it is impossible to leave. Uh, it yes. sucks you in. And yes. I knew the moment, the moment that I walked off the plane at that Burbank airport and I saw the first palm tree, I said, oh, hell no. I knew I had to go, and I was there for two years. It sucks you in because what it does is you're so far away from all your friends and everything, and everyone becomes flaky, and no one ever gets together, and then whoever you see the most, you're bound to get really attached to. And then you wind up being there for two years, because, well, maybe you get cast in a play or something, and then you follow through on that contract, and then you fall in love, maybe, and then you get in a car accident, and then you get your heart broken, and then you got to leave. I think I might be hearing a side story here. Is it possible? <laughs> um, I think no, there might I be a song here, Ryan. <laughs> um, there have been several already, but I feel like that's what everyone goes through in L.A., but I guess I'm wrong. No, no, you're right. It does. It kind of sucks you in, and you make friends here. Like my my friends are my family because nobody's really from here and nobody lives here, but your friends. So right. I totally <laughs> agree with you. It does. It sucks you in, and then you can't leave. You just can't leave. But you you have you know I have a love hate relationship with the town, just like I'm exactly. sure you do as well. Hate the driving. Yeah. Part of it, you know, but love so many things about it. Love that you can get Ethiopian food. You know, at eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. Love that you can do all these things, and love the people. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is in and nine o'clock at night is rather late out there, isn't it? Well, no. I mean, it is for me because I have a baby. But for regular people, no. Nine o'clock would be like a normal <laughs> time, but not for me. Um, yes. Right. Normal people, yeah, yeah. And but you can have all these, you know, you have all these different kinds of foods and whatever you want. You know, that's that's like L.A. movies and. If you don't want to, you know, there's 6,000 movies and you can just drive to another city. See the movie you mm-hmm. want to see. You just have to drive there. It's just, I love that. You know, it's the it's the you can get what you want town kind of thing. However, you do have to sacrifice the fact that you're going to have to get in your car and drive there and there might be, you know, an hour or two of traffic depending on when you go. <laughs> so you've got to kind of... Yeah, yeah, you gotta kind of get get accustomed to that, but it's okay. Yeah, um, well, I tell you what, Charity, we're gonna we're gonna do something we always do on the show. It's it's uh it's a game we like to play. It's called Hot or Hot Mess, where I give you a list of things. You tell me if they are hot or a hot mess. Are you ready? A hot mess? N e s s? No, 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 no. Hot mess. M is in Michael. E s s. Wait, M as in Michael Ness? <laughs> M- what hot is the word? or hot mess, like messy room mess. Oh, hot or mess, as in M-E-S as in Sam. S as in right? Sam, right. So hot as in something, oh, that's really good, or hot mess, like, oh, he's a hot mess. You know what I mean? Ah, yeah. I guess I'm not familiar with that expression. So this is new. This is new. See, i got to add this another in. thing. There's another thing L.A. does to you. Let's open it up. All right. First up on Hot or Hot Mess, Justin Bieber. Hot or Hot Mess? Oh, 
Uh, I don't know enough to say. I like the way Drew performed his song on The X Factor, so I'm going to say that was hot. Oh, do you remember which song it was? Baby, Baby. Oh, I love that song. Whenever we do karaoke in New York, I I do the ludicrous part, and my friend Erica does the uh, beaver part. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, it was great. It was a great song, so I'm going to say hot. Hot. Uh, How about Lindsay Lohan, Hot or Hot Mess? Oh, I'm probably going to have to say hot mess for that. (laughs) Um, And did you happen to catch the brain fart heard around the world last week made by Rick Perry during the GOP debate. I did. Yeah. Okay. So, let's let's revisit that for a moment and let's let's uh, we'll come back and you can tell me if you think it's hot or hot. And I will tell you it's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. <laughs> Commerce, education, and the, uh, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. <laughs> Com- five. Oh, five. Okay. So five. commerce, education, and uh, the um, uh, uh, EPA. EPA. There you go. No, okay. Let's stop. Let's stop getting Seriously? Uh, is EPA no. the one you were talking about? Or? No, sir. No, sir. We were talking about the um, agencies of government. EPA needs to be rebuilt. But There's you no can't, doubt about but that. But you can't name the third one? The third agency of government, yeah. I would I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce. I, I, commerce, and let's see, <laughs> I can't. The third one, I can't. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Was that hot Oops. or a hot mess? I just I think we're gonna have to all agree on that a hot mess there. Poor guy. I actually had a guy say it was hot last week, but he was Canadian, so he doesn't know what he was talking about. Um, um, yes, that explains it. <laughs> this is this is hip hop legend Biz Marquee beatboxing on this here show. Is this hot or a hot <laughs> night? That's what I like to hear. Yes, I agree. Um, a lot of people say a hot mess on them. They say maybe it's the audio quality over the phone. I think it sounds great. Oh, it sounds great. Nobody beats the biz. Um, and let's do last up on hot or hot mess. Occupy Wall Street, hot or hot mess? Mm. Okay, I love the sentiment. But the it does seem to be making a hot mess, doesn't it? All those people, it kind of be kind of a kind of a mess. I'm gonna have, okay, to, so I'm gonna have to give it that. So the sentiment is hot, but yes. the the outcome is a hot mess. Yes, the sentiment is hot, but the outcome is mess. So let's give it a hot mess. <laughs> okay. Don't you think? Um, huh? Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, okay, so Charity, uh, before we go, I want to make sure I break my listeners off with one of your songs. I have I Feel Fine, If I Could Fly, or In My Room, uh, which do you think would be a nice good night song to play for the, the listeners? Let's play I Feel Fine and remind them they can go to charitychapman.com and download my new song, Wait and See. And um, send me an email, too. Say hi. 
Awesome. Charity Chapman, go to charitychapman.com, download that song, and this was a blast. Thank you so much for doing it. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. Absolutely. And you did say I feel fine, correct? I did, yes. That sounds good. All right, here we go. Have a great night, Charity. You too. Bye. Waiting for tomorrow The sun will rise and I can get to you Tick-tock, I'm counting down the hours This unconscious girl is coming too Dreaming of you CharityChapman.com. Check out our first guest, Daniel Levi Gomes, at DanielLeviGomes.com. I can think of no better way to end the show than by saying, if it ain't showbiz, it ain't a biz. And lastly, hit the brakes, Florence. Good night, everybody. <laughs>